thanks again, as always, for listening. I appreciate anybody who listens to even one episode, and I appreciate everyone who's listened to so many. You keep me going. I'm so excited to share that now official on Patreon. You can find my Patreon page, become a member. It's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. Again, that's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. My name, of course, is P-E-T-E-R-R-I-E-H-L. Patreon.com backslash Chills at Will Podcast Peter Real. You can become a member today. The page is officially launched. There are three tiers of membership. Official patron membership tier is $3 a month. And with that, you'll get access to all interview episodes when they're published, mostly on Tuesdays with some published on Fridays. There are two to four interviews published each month. Lastly, you'll receive the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations, literary event calendar, and the Chills at Will podcast news, and you'll get a shout-out on a future episode. That is the official patron tier of membership for $3 a month. There's the $5 a month for the all-access patron. With the all-access patron membership, you'll have access to all new interview episodes. Each month, like I said, there are two to four interview episodes. You'll get access to those as well as a monthly bonus episode or two that is an interview or an exploration of themes through two or three texts. One example would be an episode that I did called Righteous and Justified Anger that was explored through the works by Langston Hughes and Ralph Ellison or The Power of Flashback was one episode which explored the endings of The Godfather Part 2 sleepers and that was then this is now with the all access patron membership you'll also receive a refrigerator magnet with the chills at will podcast logo and the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations literary event calendar and the chills at will podcast news you will get a shout out on a future episode too with the vip patron tier which is ten dollars a month you'll get access to all episodes a monthly newsletter with reading suggestions and a calendar of literary events and updates on the Chills at Will podcast, access to a monthly AMA, Ask Me Anything, and a t-shirt with the Chills at Will podcast logo. There are two to four monthly episodes and one or two bonus episodes, which are interviews or discussions of themes as seen through multiple texts. VIP patrons will also receive a special shout-out on a future episode. I encourage you to please join Patreon for the Chills at Will podcast. As I say all the time, this is truly a labor of love. This is truly a DIY operation. I started in April of 2020, and it has been an absolute pleasure. 99.999% fun. I've gotten to interview people like Disha Filia, what? Matt Bell. Brandon Hobson, Luis Alberto Orrea, Jean Guerrero, Gustavo Arellano, Taylor Bias, Gabby Bates, Alice Elliott Dark, Nadia Owusu, and so, so, so many more. Did I say Jess Walter? Did I say Jeff Perlman? Ingrid Rojas Contreras, Jamil John Cochai, Morgan Talty, Sadie Shore Parks. 
Rachel Yoder, Vanessa Angelica Villarreal, Kirsten Chen, Sam Quinones, Ion Grillo, Raina Kelly, Zach Harper, Michael Torres, Tracy Cato Kirayama, S.J. Sindhu, Roberto Lovato, Todd Goldberg, Steph Cha, Noel Kassler, Reina Grande, James Tate Hill, Navdeep Dylan Singh, Nikisha Elise Williams, Mia St. John, Susan Muladi Daraj, Sarah Borjas, and the list goes on and on. Future episodes include conversations with, with Allegra Hyde, with Justin Tinsley, Javier Zamora, Jose Antonio Vargas, Yasmin Ramirez, Kai Harris, Laura Worrell, so, so, so many cool people. Patreon.com backslash Chills at Will podcast Peter Real. What are you waiting for? See you over there. Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 156 of the Chills of Well podcast. Pleasure to be joined by Namrata Podar. Namrata writes fiction and nonfiction, serves as interviews editor for Quelly, and teaches literature and writing at UCLA. Go Bruins! Her work has appeared in several publications, including Poets and Writers, Literary Hub, Long Reads, The Kenyan Review, and The Best Asian Short Stories. Her debut novel, Borderless, was a finalist for Feminist Press's Luis Merriweather Prize. Good morning. How are you? Doing good. Yeah, uh, it's it's warmed up a little here. You know, it's been an unusually um, cold winter here. Yeah, I heard some of that. I heard some of that wet stuff has been falling down in SoCal. Yeah, yeah, we can always yeah. use the wet stuff. Yeah, but we're so spoiled here. I know, people. right? I know, I know. Same up here, and it's like. You know, I know we need the rain so bad, but it's like, ah, you know, I know. You hate it when it comes. But... Yeah. Oh, man. Well, now the novel, which is so good, it's going to be the main, you know, thrust of our conversation. Is it pronounced, you know, because it's split into two, it's not borderless. Is right. it pronounced the same way or is it like border space less, border pause less? I tend to pause a little bit because okay. there is a tendency in people to kind of conflate that into one word. And right. I certainly did not, do not intend the title to be one word. So I'd say borderless, like okay. a little bit of an emphasis on that because the reasons I mentioned. Apropos of nothing, well, not apropos of nothing, apropos of a little bit, but I love the, the term that you may have coined. You may be the first to write it, mama log. <laughs> so good. <laughs> 
Could be, could be, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I was I was opposed to a monologue. I, there's a difference. There's a monologue and there's a monologue. That was really well done. I think it was, uh, I think it was Dia's mom, Dia, the main yes. character. I think so. I'd love to know. Again, it's an honor to have you here, and I would love to know about some of the beginnings. Um, Mumbai. I know you were born there, but you know, I'd love to know about about language. Um, you know, what was your your the language you spoke growing up or languages? What was your relationship with the written word? So language, yeah, speaking of monologue, right? Huh. <laughs> um, I a little bit of a correction. I wasn't born in Mumbai. I was okay. born in Calcutta, but raised in Mumbai. And okay. I'm a proud Mumbai girl for that. You Just are. you know, from the time I have memories of sort of being here. I have firstly of Mumbai and then secondly of United States. Okay. Um, Language, I mean, India is linguistically the most diverse country I know. Um, mm. Africa is the most diverse continent, mm. but uh, in terms of language and Mumbai within India is the most, it's like New York City. It's kind right. of the migrant hub of South Asia. Um, very, very diverse ethno-linguistically and culturally. Mm. So I grew up surrounded by languages. Um, most Mumbaikers grew up multilingual, and I was no exception to that. So um, my education, like most in urban middle class, urban India, and that's a different reality than rural India. Mm. Um, urban India language of education often for middle class and up is English. So English is certainly my language of education. Mm -hmm. I call it my first language. I proudly claim it to be my first language. Mm -hmm. It's not my native language. I see. Um, I don't speak fluently my native language because I come from a community of migrants. We've mm -hmm. moved from place to place and we've adapted to the local language. So my parents didn't speak to me in our native language they spoke in um in india's national language which is hindi and english and mumbai parents very much sort of hindi and english which okay. we call hinglish so they uh -huh. spoke their version of hinglish hmm. my siblings and i my cousins and i my sibling one sibling uh and i um people of our generation we spoke our version of hinglish but english for sure I spoke the regional language, Marathi, but also with neighbors, they had their own languages where we were living. So we wow. we picked up languages from, so you, you know, like back and forth between languages is so yeah. much a part, not just of Indian languages, but also in English. Hmm. Um, the English that we grew up with, there were many inflections to that. The English of school was a very colonial English, very okay. formal, mm -hmm. very British. Right. Um, and I love American English because it feels so different to me huh. than British English uh, uh -huh. in so many ways. Um, so that was that the school, the English of school, the English of people of my generation was very peculiar, very inflected by slang and multiple mm. languages with our parents. It was a different English. And I hope the book, I mean, I hope Borderless, uh, the novel has those different inflections of English within it, or at least characters speaking. So that's sort of the relationship with language. With the written word, well, I always loved writing and I did always well in school with language and writing, but that's where it stopped in many ways. Okay. Because um, if you did well where I come from and which is a very gritty, 
middle class Mumbai, which would be considered like poor for mm. first world standards or North American standards. Um, written word, if you're good at it, I don't think you're encouraged to pursue a career in it. That was not not even a concept. Hmm. Uh, language was big. My dad is a musician. My okay. grandfather, my father, they're very much into poetry and certain play with language. But hmm. it's sort of part of the community. There was no direction uh, for anywhere um, between the older generation or my generation that you can take it somewhere. So I didn't know until a long time, until now, when people ask me, okay, where did it begin? Like here, you're asking, what's your relationship uh, with the uh, written word? When I look back, okay, that was there, but no one was there to point it out. So it was uh, there, languages you learn, but I had no intention of becoming a writer. Um, yeah. I didn't even know one could pursue sort of a path in it. Huh. That happened only after I moved from Philadelphia, where I went to grad school when I came to Los Angeles. That's when, um, and the closest you could get to your love of storytelling was literary criticism. It's the only path I knew. And okay. then I came to Los Angeles because I had a job teaching literature. And that's when... That's when I thought, okay, maybe this could be like a career path, like storytelling outside of analyzing, deconstructing and teaching students could be a path for me. So that's sort of a very long one answer to your question. No, I appreciate that. There's there's a lot there, of course. So um, apartment or flat? Flat then apartment now. Good answer. answer. (laughs) Not that there's a right answer, but interesting. Okay, Kolkata, is that correct? Where you're from originally? But so like, you know, they'll talk about like, for example, like... um, like Mexican regional music, like banda and that kind of thing. Like you'll be in Mexico City, which is, you know, what, depending on the year, one of the biggest cities in the world, maybe the biggest, depending on the year, top three, four, whatever. And But so many people are one generation removed from like the rural areas, right? Or two generations. So I wonder like, you know, like Dia in the book, who's the main character, her ancestry, I believe is from Rajasthan. That's right. In the Thar Desert. Is that the same for your, like, do you have like rural, like three and four or two generations back? Like, I guess the whole, you know, Mumbai being a huge place, like you said, versus like how much of your, I guess your writing and your, in your, and your background is, is rural and informed by that. It isn't. So my ancestors, even going further back, like my great grandparents, Mm -hmm. they come from the Thar Desert, but they come from cities in the Thar Desert, which were key ports of the Silk Road. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I have an urban ancestry that phase, but also migrant, because when, when the Silk Road, the trade routes of the Silk Road, they changed with colonization and the invention of the ship and they became Uh coastal. Many of my like grandparents, right? Many, many of the older generation in my community, they moved to different Indian cities. So we mm-hmm. went from cities in the Thar Desert mm-hmm. to cities in coastal, coastal okay. India. So that's where, but you're right. I mean, speaking of the gap between the urban and rural, I certainly have an urban history, but I also am I'm married uh, to an Indian American who has roots in rural India. So that's okay. it's very different. Yeah. It's a very different world. Oh, um, wow. Oh, very interesting. So Tony Morrison has a quote about something to the effect of if if you haven't seen the book you want in the world, you you write it. Did you like I guess ideas of representation, like did you, you know, having the colonial education was it kind of like, ah, oh, this is just what we read, that's the way it is? Or were you always kind of questioning like where are the Indian voices, where are the 
the indigenous voices and then did you kind of like write the book you wanted out there in the world that was missing to answer the last <laughs> question absolutely i did all right as immodest as it sounds hey no 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 <laughs> brag about yourself all um, right <laughs> um representation was important um and that sort of ties in with the first question that you're asking about colonial education mm -hmm. for sure my generation in urban india had a very colonial education so i remember still um like so many uh kids of my generation right back in the day we were reciting the daffodils at the age of seven or eight like mm -hmm. Um, having no idea what daffodils are. We've never seen the daffodils anywhere. Right. Us. right. Um, and Shakespeare, I mean, it's hard to imagine a study of literature without reading Shakespeare. At the same time, I remember, um, how old was I? Maybe nine, ten, preteen, and being forced in many ways to recite to thine own self be true. And I'm like, this is not my English. This has yeah, this yeah, English yeah. has nothing to do with the English um, that I hear around me. So there was always, always a divorce. And that's why I mentioned I did not aspire in many ways to be a writer mm -hmm. because I associated being a writer with the world of literature, which right. I loved. I was always attracted to at the same time with that attraction mm -hmm. coexisted a divorce. Hmm. Um, between the world on the page in many ways, which you're attracted to, because as human beings, we relate to so many things sure. on sure. the page, no matter no matter the literature of whichever part of the world. At the same time, it was like, where is my language? This is not hmm. how my people speak. And hmm. at the same time, we are Anglophone. We are proudly Anglophone yeah. as well. We are multilingual, but we are also Anglophone. Right. Yeah, that's, so interesting. that's such a like a prompt for teachers, right? Like if, if it, if what you're teaching has nothing to do with what your, your students experience, what, yeah. are you, what, are, what are you doing? You know? And like, I think it's the reality at the same time, did you think like of like yes. majority of our world yes. also because, yes. um, because of the history of colonization. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Who were some of those voices early on that, you, you know, whether they're Indian, Indian American, or anti-colonialism or, or or writing about it colonialism with a you know critical lens who are some of those writers who really inspired you i think they were in both they were in the colonial world and they were in the non-colonial world so i have to say i came to literature via maybe a colonial world firstly sure so um but at the same time because i was i I've always claimed English as my language. And when I read English literature, I felt such a divorce with the literature that we were taught mm. in the school. Um, the other colonial language that we had the option of learning was French, okay. because India has also had a French colonial presence, except mm. that it doesn't have that bigger colonial history as the British colonial history. Right, in India. Right, right, right. So um, French is something I kept pursuing. Um, and for me, it was easier maybe to enter that colonial world than the English colonial world okay. because it was less of an immediate relationship mm -hmm. with it, of antagonism, if that right. makes sense. Right, right, right. Um, and that's how, so I mean, I, you know, language learning is something I've always learned. I'm a huge advocate. You're teaching, you're teaching Spanish as well. I'm a huge advocate of learning and teaching foreign languages yes. because of what it does to your worldview. Um, yeah, yeah. And I loved entering a foreign world, maybe through French 
and francophone culture because mm. francophone is huge africa is a big part of francophone right. culture right. so experiencing africa and francophone culture but also france so um my peach my you know for grad school i applied because i also i got a full scholarship hey. to kind of um right to kind of uh <laughs> read books and not write bad. about it you wouldn't take it like not for bad. seven years not bad. Yeah. <laughs> seven years Seven years, yeah. Wow. I mean, five years originally. Most PhD programs offer that. Okay, yeah. But humanities students are notorious for not finishing their PhD. <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> um, in five years. So for seven years, it was fully funded. And someone, you know, coming from a background, like I said, in terms of class that would be considered poor in the first world standards. It was a huge lottery for me mm -hmm. to kind of win that and opportunity. Um, right. So I would say um, some of my earliest influences are also from the Francophone tradition, French speaking tradition and French writers. I love the older ones, uh, Rabelais, um, who is the equivalent of Shakespeare at that time in the French-speaking world. But what I loved in him is what I saw in Mumbai, is a certain play with languages, a very irreverent play with French language. Mm. And he makes a lot of fun of academia as yeah. well, which I love. Yeah. Um, so he's definitely... You love academia or you love making fun of academia? Or both? Maybe both. Both. Okay. <laughs> both. I, I love academia. I'm certainly a book nerd, but <laughs> it, like so many other places, it's a problematic institution uh, as well. Uh, um, very much like our, you know, political institutions with, uh, hmm. with the big P. Um, uh -huh. So um, he's for sure one. Marcel Proust. I love okay. Proust. Um, deeply meditative philosophical kind of a writer philosophical novel right. louise labe in the renaissance again the feminist writers i've always loved so in the french tradition would be louise labe and then christine de pizan is one of the in the middle ages but she wrote an extremely feminist book for her time the city of mm. ladies um, so these are some of um, the ones in sort of the colonial tradition, one could say, or from the colonial language, coming from the right. colonial language. Um, in, in the Anglophone, we've always had a strong tradition in the South Asian ones and um, who, who have done storytelling in ways to challenge, right, like... Um, Western modes of storytelling, but also the influence of British Empire on our culture. So Salman Rushdie, for sure, oh he, he's also a Bombay boy and the way That's he did right. language in his writing. Uh -huh. That was sort of my first brush. I was like, okay, I can enter the world of literature because yes. that was the first time I saw literature with a big L kind of yeah, reflect yeah. my world, um, but also English in that book, Midnight's Children. Oh, yeah. The way he did English in the book, that reflected my English. So I felt like that was the first book really that bridged that divorce I always mm -hmm. felt with literature in some ways. Uh, Rushdie is great, but I think so. Um, Suketu Mehta, who's a Pulitzer finalist who lives in New York once again from Mumbai. Okay. And of course, our women writers, uh, we've had a long tradition, Arundhati Roy, Bharati Mukherjee, the earlier ones. Um, you know, these are two of my biggest ones. I love Chitra Banerjee Devakaruni, who teaches at University of Houston um, mm. because of the ways in which she's reimagined um, female or women characters from Hindu mythology, from our mythological oh, okay. traditions. 
African writers, great again, so many, both in the Anglophone tradition, Francophone tradition, um, some of my biggest influences in Borderless, but also in my thinking because I've written so much nonfiction mm-hmm. um, that challenge, right? Some, some of the mainstream modes of storytelling that we teach in our workshops in the West. Right, so right. from Africa, but also from the Caribbean. And one of my biggest influences, I love Aimé Césaire, Um, He's an Afro-Caribbean poet, one of the earlier ones who, um, you know, one of the key thinkers also in terms of uh, decolonization. I think he's part of that intellectual circle that led eventually, I feel, to the decolonization of Asian Mm. and African countries. Um, And then the biggest influence, one of the biggest influence outside of South Asian traditions and American, um, you know, USA and Anglophone traditions and of USA is uh, Afro-Caribbean poet, and he was Nobel nominated the same year that Derek Walcott won the Nobel Prize, oh. and his name is Edouard Glissant, okay. who, who who wrote in French, and you know, he, like his writings about multiculturalism and how do we live with each other in harmony? All that is like so relevant to our times. I'm amazed mm. how few, and he's, he he is a Caribbean. He's a French Caribbean writer, but from Caribbean. So he's also North American writer in that respect. Right. Always amazed how little he's known in the United States. He's very mm. well known outside of the United States, okay. I feel, but less so. Yeah, and he, his work is so relevant, I feel, to our country and mm. all the questions that we talk about every every four years during elections. Yes. I'm thinking a lot with like the World Cup and, um, you know, like Morocco beat beat the whole Iberian Peninsula. Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. And all the, you know, colonizers and such. And um a lot of uh, French Fanon yes of course did, yeah. did he write in French originally yes he did he did okay yeah and he's right. part of the same kind of yeah the, these the writers yeah big influence Fanon is part of the same legacy maybe in so many ways as Aimé Césaire and Edouard Glissant okay. from the Caribbean Caribbean has such an amazing legacy and right. you know um, maybe Francophone Caribbean also Hispanophone, you you teach Spanish, so you yeah. probably know this better than I do. But um, so much of it is relevant to a country. And I'm always surprised that right. we don't, you know, in our classrooms, uh, mm. look outside of the Anglophone, right? English speaking uh, traditions. Yeah. I think that's changing, but but way too slowly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm looking over over my computer here. at the, I have a France Fanon poster. It's got the, you know, one of his famous quotes, but the... Uh, I think so much like with, with Trumpism and things like that, I think so much of uh, cognitive dissonance that he spoke so much about, right? This idea that like, if you have something in your head that you believe is, you know, believe to be true or can't have it not be true, you will do anything. You will say anything to justify it, to rationalize it. Right. I'm not saying it is poetically repeated, but that's, that's definitely always on my mind. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. And he, he, he comes from, I mean, he, he, he was, uh, he was trained as a psychiatrist, like he has a whole psychology background. So that makes sense. I didn't know about this quote, but that would make sense. Yeah. Coming from Fano. Right. Yeah. Oh, man. 
as as we get into you know more recent years, who are some contemporary writers? I mean, you mentioned a couple, and you know some you know they never go out of style. But who are some contemporary writers who are really challenging you, inspiring you? Yeah, you mean in fiction or in all all, all around? Yeah. I mean, I who, was, are you, who are you like excited about? Like, oh, there's this new article. She's got a new short story or she's got a new book. Gosh, so many. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I think it's an exciting time in American literature for sure. You know, um, the scene the scene is becoming more and more diverse. It needs to be a lot more, but we, mm-hmm. you know, I'll take the changes than uh, none at all. So many peers are doing amazing work um, in poetry, but also reimagining places like the desert because I have desert roots mm-hmm. where I've never lived. Um, right, right, right. Um, is Natalie Diaz's poetry. I love Natalie Diaz's oh, work. Yeah. Um, I loved post-colonial love poem mm-hmm. um, in terms of um, play with language because in fiction, that's what I'm drawn to. I'm, I've mm-hmm. always been a narrative writer, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, less poetry. Um, so I said already Salman Rushdie because of how he does things with language. I loved um, Sandra Cisneros's work in mm. especially her earlier work, The House on Mango Street, oh, um, yeah. with what it did with form, like questions of form, Woman Hollering Creek as well, what it yeah. did with form, short short fiction, but novels sometimes, like House on Mango Street, right? It's a novel in vignettes. It's a very interesting kind of a borderline, border zone form. Mm-hmm. Um, but what she did in her work with language, I love. Um, um, nonfiction, I'm thinking fiction. There are so many, gosh, I, you know... No, I'll put you on the spot. I know there's, you could be going for hours, but um, um, nonfiction. I also want to share um, Melissa Fabos's work when it comes to oh, okay. deep personal storytelling. I mm. love um, Imani Perry. I love oh, yeah. um, her work because it's deeply personal storytelling, but she's also she's also an academic, so she kind right. of brings that kind of a little bit of an academic style in her writing, but weaves it in a right. way that makes it much more accessible to yes, sort of a very yes. large audience. And I love that skill. Um, these are some, there are just so many. <laughs> um, I gotcha. And, and obviously we're wishing the best for Salman Rushdie with his recovery. I mean, that yes, was, yes. you just saw the outpouring um, from, you know, the whole community, all the writing communities that he's beloved. Um, yeah, I don't want to be a literary hipster, but like you, you mentioned, uh, Women Hollering Creek, I don't want to be like, you know, House on Mango Street was good, but and I love that, but um, but yeah, Woman Hollering Creek. There's the one about the uh, the girl who gets pregnant through the uh, the guy. I want to say Chuck C H A Q. He takes an indigenous name, and she's really into into him because he's you know supposedly so much into indigeneity, and he basically just uses her like so many have. I'm I'm kind of I'm not describing it perfectly, but that's one that always sticks with me. And that's from Woman Hollering Creek, and I think um, it's more of a straightforward story. But I think Eleven is from that. The, or seven, you mean? Is it? It's an age. I want to say eleven. So where the girl um loses her, there's a sweater loss in the classroom. Seven. It is seven. Seven. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like her birthday, and there's there's just so much there. That's one that's you know nice to teach in the class. It's yeah, deceptively simple, right? Right, but deceptively simple. Yeah, someone with the training. Cisneros first trained as a poet so that as well I appreciate the border crossing that happens right when she writes fiction you know there are parts that are very poetic you can sense sort of a background in poetry but I think 
border crossing with form i love a lot what she does mm. with form and language a lot of like oral oral storytelling that she kind of right. brings in a lot of yeah voices no and things like that no doubt about it. so borderless again is is two words it's not borderless it's not meaning without borders or or is it i mean i mean do you is that kind of up to the reader or do you have some ideas on what borderless means i certainly have ideas <laughs> i guess the question I... is do you want to share them or not yeah yeah, sure. Um, you know, the reason to make it two words was because I didn't want people to get that impression borderless meaning without borders. And yes, it's a meditation in many ways on what it might take for many of the women characters in the book uh, to feel borderless when you're mm. so kind of constrained by the system, right? And what is yeah. the system? The system is patriarchy. The system is capitalism. The system is a combination of two heteronormativity, et cetera, et cetera. That is certainly a meditation or an aspiration for many of the characters, that single word. But I didn't want it to be a single word because, I mean, as we are moving forward in time and with so many right wing governments across the world, including in my uh, in the country that I was born in, India, right mm -hmm. now, our prime minister as well. I didn't want people to think, oh, we are in this borderless world where we are, we, where we have right. these right wing governments enforcing more and more strictly borders and border control. Mm. Um, so in that sense, I wanted to be very cautious of not using that term as one word. Um, two words, borderless, because maybe at the everyday level, and this is what interests me the most, maybe in writing is power dynamics mm. and power struggles and how characters in different situations, they negotiate power. Mm. And they, you know, especially those of uh, the underdog, right? right. Those in the minority, um, the minority position within that situation, like how, how do they navigate the borders that can be imposed on them by different systems of power so that's certainly one one interpretation but i would say and this is i'm totally giving it away um is with the last chapter um you know um in the book there is the goddess of hindu creation shakti who's speaking in the last chapter and i think if one had to take only one interpretation of the novel, I would say I would associate that with the last chapter mm -hmm. and Shakti at moments very directly talking to the Western literary establishment and, and in many ways telling the establishment to border less the novel as a form. So you're saying border as a verb? Very much so. Firstly... Like to border, to make borders. Or, yeah, to unmake borders huh right For, by bordering less year yeah. ah well speaking of plays on words wordplay you know the structure of the book is roots r o r part one is r o o t s and then second part is roots as in a root as in a direction as in a road um i wonder about the seeds for that and i guess maybe even just the book in general and then also i get a lot here so i guess the first one is is this a, are these thematically linked short stories or these chapters? Like, how would you describe, how did you describe the book, like to the publisher and, and all that? I certainly call it a novel and very stubbornly so coming to the <laughs> last question. Um, at the same time, it's, um, 
it, it, it's also challenging, right, the ideas of sort of the mainstream novel. Mm. Um, and I want to write about it. I've spoken about it in interviews, like this idea of a novel being driven by continuity, right? This idea right. of building a novel, the world of a novel being akin to a long, a vivid, continuous dream. That's sort of mm. the one by John Gardner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and those imply like ideas of continuity, but also cause and effect and linearity mm. that's sort of uh, so big um, to many ideas, maybe in the mainstream workshop, uh, but continuity, wholeness. I, I wanted to challenge all those ideas of continuity and wholeness, first of all, because these are recent ideas mm. in history when it comes to the novel itself, including the Western novel. Right. Um, and it's associated often with the rise of and popularity of realism. So almost like 18th, 19th, 19th century. Before that, I don't think we were that driven by the idea of one or a few protagonists or maybe even character driven fiction mm. might be a recent invention from what I know. At yeah. least uh, it's a recent invention in literary fiction. Um, and there are writers, there are writers who've written about this, writers of color, and it does not reflect so many of our legacies. And that's why the book opens with a quote by Edouard Glissant, um, Afro-Caribbean writer, poet, thinker, um, who tells that whenever, you know, I mean, he's talking about societies or communities that were colonized and how so much of our storytelling did not obey the ideas of continuity. In fact, it was very stubbornly and consciously marked by ideas of mm -hmm. discontinuity, eruption, kind of fragments, etc. Yeah. Um, so I built on that, but that made sense once again. Like, so how did I describe when I was kind of pitching? Yeah. I would call it a fragmented novel, a hybrid novel, an experimental mm. novel. These are some of the words I used. If I had to describe it to the mainstream, like sort of a <laughs> mainstream audience who understands novel, you know, through the tradition of the realist, realist novel, I would say it's a novel in short fiction. Okay. I would not call it a novel in vignettes. I would not call it a novel in short stories. Mm. Even if, like you, I love, I mean, I think the short, short fiction is my favorite form too. Mm. Um, but I say short fiction over short story because story is a very specific uh -huh. form of short story. Sure. Um, and, you know, there, there are vignettes in the book. There are chapters that are vignettes in the book. There are chapters that are short stories in the book. And then there are chapters in the book that are neither. They're sort of hybrid connectors, mm -hmm. a couple, something like Blue and Brown, if you remember, it's yeah. uh, from the perspective of a refugee that could be interpreted as a prose poem. So it's short. It's a short narrative, but I, I would not call it a short story. Story. Mm. Um, you, the the difference between short fiction and short story, like, do you does do you feel like short story like has a connotation of like an end and like a neat wrapped up in a box type of thing? And short fiction is more because a lot of your the vignettes or short fiction that you have in here, a lot of it is it just makes you think, you know, which all the great fiction does. It makes you think as you leave it, like you kind of fill in the gaps of maybe what happens down the road, right? You know. Right. And short stories, I, I I think we're on the same page with that, that they do have subtler endings. They don't have to give it all yeah. you know, front to the reader. They do have that. But the sense of movement, like, for instance, vignette and short story, these are two different types of short fiction. Mm -hmm. Vignette may not have the same sense of movement right. that a short story has, if that mm -hmm. makes any sense. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so much is felt intuitively, I feel, <laughs> in writing. Um, and then short story, the way I understand, and I hesitate to call it a short story, is, of course, A Thousand and One Nights, if we go back to our earlier traditions, okay. right, of the non-West. These were books made of short stories, connected short stories. Mm-hmm. But they were understood very differently, once again, than the realist or the modern short story in a more Western tradition, right? I'm thinking, I don't know, like short stories of Raymond Carver or John Cheever okay. or or Grace Paley. Those, the, they still had some kind of wholeness. Mm, wholeness, yes. Right? They had some sense of wholeness in a way that short stories of the Thousand and One Nights may not have or even aspire to. They were driven by their own aesthetic assumptions. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I hesitate to call it st- uh, short stories because I feel in the United States, especially with the rise of the workshop culture, right, 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 right. short stories understood more through the lens of the kind of stories that we associate with Updike or Cheever or Grace Paley, etc. Sorry, I had a, a brief uh, flashback to to an ugly workshop experience. I'm okay, I'm over it now. <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs> Those were uh, those were like crucibles, right? They were formative. They were, they could be pretty ugly, but they could also be very helpful. And in the end, they were helpful. I, um, I think of like this the the story nine twelve doesn't seem to be incredibly like explicitly linked to a lot of the other parts of the book, but I just I really enjoyed it. And I can't quite put my finger on why I did, but it wasn't nine twelve as in as in September twelfth two thousand eleven. It was like what maybe two thousand sixteen two thousand seventeen. One, it put, you know, I mean, it seems so simple, but, you know, like in Chile, for example, 9-11 means something different. They had like, there was like a massacre of sorts, right? And, and you know, the Indian, um, the terrorist attack in India, you know, this idea that, you know, American Americans were not the only ones, mm-hmm. right? But I guess I'm just kind of wondering, like, like that particular story, 9-12, it's kind of like the boys, uh, Muslims, and they're just kind of talking about life and about how they're treated and about, you know, political fallout i guess what did that, what is that what do you feel like that story accomplished or is accomplished not even the right word because you've just it's there and you're not trying to you know wrap things up in a whole way sorry that's a rambling question no no i appreciate it um you know first of all i think those are like four friends talking in the story at, at a bar right at a makeshift makeshift bar um and they 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 are multi uh, into it's interreligious friendship. We have a Christian okay. guy, we have a Hindu guy, we have a Muslim guy, yeah. and then the fourth one I forget. But it's basically Hindu, Muslims, Christians talking among themselves. Um, and one of the characters is actually the maid's, the Nepali maid's boyfriend. So there is a story uh, in the yes, book, yes, 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 um, yes. Uh, that's told from a Nepali maid's perspective. And why? What does it accomplish? So as I see it once again, I don't see. I mean. People have interpreted, and that's a fair interpretation, mm-hmm. that Borderless is a story of the call center agent whose story, with whose story the novel begins. Dia right. It's Dia's story. Right. Um, and that's a fair interpretation, but Dia's story is so interweaved in the book with stories of yes. different characters that kind of pass through her life yes. in different ways, right? It kind of creates a web. Um, so Dia's friends at some point in the novel are getting married in Mumbai and that story is being told from a Nepali maid's perspective who's another migrant character and then her boyfriend is telling sort of the story of the uh, you know of the boys talking in 9-12 mm. 
So it was a way for me to tell Dia's story, but interweave her story with a South Asian migrant community with characters from across the world. Yes. That's what it accomplishes, that web. Thank you for that. that. That makes a lot of sense. The first story is Help Me Help You. You referred to like the call center. Um, Diaz, I mean, she's an actress, right? I mean, she's performing. They're they're given a script. They're given, um, you know, s- certain things they have to do. Um, I You built the tension so well in that story. All right. What what are they called? Uh, fatal errors, right? You, you get a certain amount of fatal errors and you will not, and she will not be promoted. She wants to go to Manila, which is kind of like the next step and, you know, much better, um, money and things like that so she has to take a, a you know a racist call from karen i mean vicky um and you know <laughs> you just the way you build the tensions like the time is running out like they're supposed to stay under i think what 15 minutes maybe yeah yeah time is running out for sure i don't remember the exact yeah now. yeah yeah no and it was just like oh my gosh and we you just win sorry to, to to spoil a little bit but when the time does run out you're just like you feel for her so much you just build up the tension so well so um, you, you know, you could always get into suspense and thrillers and stuff too, you know? <laughs> right? I never knew I had it in me. Thank you for saying that. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, it's this idea of like, you know, she, she takes like just, vit- you know, racist vitriol and this idea of like, okay, you know, the customer was always right and those type of things. And just that everyone has to make a, make a, make a paycheck. Everyone has to earn a paycheck and even her boss. And you just, you feel so horrible for the things she has to take. I believe this is the second story, which is lady special. And that's another cool one. That's I want to say there's maybe three if you include nine, twelve, and there's one with like where the ladies get together for like the mimosa every Sunday. But it's just so cool. It's just like just friends getting together. In this case, they're on the train. It's hectic. You know, it's kind of tongue in cheek, right? Calling it like the ladies, ladies' night special train. And um, you know, one of the friends is talking about like ideas of American productivity, right? It's kind of like an American word, but just like you know their daily lives. The one woman is, you know, cutting carrots, getting so she hasn't prepared for when she gets home. And it's just, you know, it's just really cool, like having the character, the city as a character as well. What did you what did you see in that story? Ladies special and especially writing in first person with we and I. What um, what were you trying to get across there? So many things in that chapter, actually. Yeah. You know, we we are talking about story, right? Like we, we, we were talking about short fiction, different forms of short fiction. Mm-hmm. Vignette, a short story. And if you think about that chapter, it's it's more than a vignette, but it's certainly not a short story. Because if you think about it, it's like characters chit-chatting. Right being in many ways in that train and that's it that's the story and which is Mm. not really a story if you think about it right Mm. um so um but it does end with a reflection on mumbai Uh, yeah mumbai as a character i'm glad you caught that and that is certainly you know um an unconscious intention that i i discovered in my own drafts okay mumbai is a character in this as well um but there's a reflection on archipelago. Mumbai is an archipelago city. It was a city originally of seven islands. Mm-hmm. And the way the book is structured, the way I see it, it has a very archipelago, archipelagic structure, right? These different islands. Ooh, that's a good word. Archipelagic. Is that, do you make that word up? It sounds good. It's archipelagic? Oh, I like yeah. it. <laughs> I was a huge... Um, I call myself an island girl because uh. I grew up in Mumbai as well. I'm 
huge into the idea of archipelagos. I studied island literature and Glisson, who yeah. opens the book, he talks a lot about the Caribbean uh-huh. and archipelagos as ways of storytelling. So archipelagic has come up in my <laughs> work very often, but yeah, I, I think I have a very personal attachment. It sounds like it. <laughs> um, but you know, LA, where we live, like greater Los Angeles, to me, it's so different from New York, which is also an island city, yes. New York City. Um, but like, I feel greater Los Angeles is an archipelagic city. I mean, we mm. have we have Westminster, we have in Orange County, where I live, Santa Ana, right? Yeah. Like one of the biggest Latino enclaves, Westminster, one of the biggest um, Vietnamese, right? Vietnamese enclaves. Mm-hmm. And then you have Cerritos and Little India. So we have like these different islands so to speak Mm. because of urban planning the way they are kind of clustered it's like an archipelagic city so um there is a whole meditation on archipelago in that and one of the characters wonders with archipelago as a structure she says who becomes the main character uh, Mm. in this city in the city guide and who 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 become the marginal characters and i think it offers it's kind of a you know, a meta moment or a meta. Right, it is for sure. On the book as well. Like when when things are are an archipelago, how do you find the center and how do you find the margin? And mm. that's sort of a reflection on the book structure. Um, Lady Special also was one of the original titles of the book, Lady Special Homebound, because mm-hmm. in many ways one can say the book is like a train of different compartments. Right, different compartments with different yeah. characters, and each one is trying to get home somehow. Mm. So I, I felt like that metaphor made sense, and it's tongue in cheek, lady sure. special. Yes, but it's also very literal. There's literally a train in Mumbai called mm. Lady Special as well. So like a train full of women trying to go home felt like a good metaphor. Yes, <laughs> yes, um, yeah. The ending is so powerful, and I, you know, I'm sure you'll be complimented to be to be complimented and and compared to like like you talk about Imani Perry with like the academic, but also the personal. And this story is personal; it's not your first person story, but it's fictional. But like, I just thought it was so interesting how it ends with that history and like the bigger, the more the more meta or the more mi- uh, macro, right? When it's a lot of micro stories. And I love the the plot device, I guess, where it right it was like the last images of a of this book that's turned, so you can't see the front cover, and kind of like what something about what name was it in the ancient book? What name was used for these people? Um, and it's just so cool, like you can see the book, it's historical, but like we can't see the cover. That was so cool. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, the the idea of naming as we are talking naming. because. Mumbai has had historic fights over its name, but it's the same with Borderless as well. When we yeah. talk about fiction, what what name would sure. you give this? Is it a novel? It's something I always sort of have to explain that as well. Is it short stories? Is it vignettes or what is it? So that whole idea of naming with that as well. Right. <laughs> conscious. Um, I, I wouldn't say tension is the word, but there's you know definitely themes of religious attention maybe you know in light ways like um you know aziz who's one of dia's first boyfriends you know he's muslim and she we don't necessarily know that her father is against that but she's like i'm not sure you know that i'm kind of gonna deal with that later and they don't end up staying together for very long and I, I don't think because of the religion but you know it could be implied maybe that there was an expectation maybe that that would be something down the road but you know financial fortunes of course um is definitely one of the themes you know like the chemo 
um, that needs to be done for, is it pronounced Kishan? Kishan? Yeah, Kishan. Kishan, mm-hmm. right? Um, and you talked about the Nepali narrator and she, you know, she is, uh, you know, there's of course class divisions for sure. And I mean, she is put down, she is yelled at, she's made to feel like she's about an, one inch tall, right? And they have, you know, those kind of like those tongue in cheek nicknames for Sweetie Die and Madame, right? <laughs> and, you know, you know, ideas of like, you know, for sure. Um, you talked about, you talked earlier about that, the baby shower, right? Is it, is it Ronnie is the yeah. cousin? And so, you know, they get together and Ronnie, who seems kind of like bohemian, like, you know, nose ring, kind of like chill or whatever. And she just, you know, again, just lambastes the the waiter. The food's not, you know, it's too cold, this and that. So, you know, there are clearly class divisions. There are people who don't know anything other than an air-conditioned office or an air-conditioned house. And then there are people who have to, you know, scrimp and save and like you talked about, live in gritty areas and you know, always having to save money and look for the next job. And with Dia, like you talk about, right, she comes from maybe middle class or lower middle class, but she doesn't have a father. She, she doesn't have a, an inheritance. And everything she does is think, okay, how am I going to take care of my mom and all those types of things, right? So I wonder about, like, I guess economic disparity. Like, was that something that was on your mind consciously to to show those differences, to show those clashes, whether they're loud ones or quiet ones? To be honest, no, uh, not at all. Um, but I did realize, you know, like when you're writing, when we're writing like the early stages, we never like, I mean, I'm not writing consciously like, okay, mm. I'm going to write around this theme. We're just following certain voices, certain images. Right. But in the later stages of writing, when I came back kind of wearing the critics hat, I was like, whoa, you know, I think class is a pretty important theme in this book class so I discovered actually um, in later stages of rereading my own work that class is a pretty important one and I'm discovering even now on my path as a writer not just with fiction but with nonfiction, that class comes up pretty often Mm -hmm. Um, and which which makes sense because migration comes up very consciously migration I feel comes up consciously in my work because I'm very aware of how much it informs me as a person um and my life as well um but with migration right moving from one of the parts of the world that's kind of seen as a poster child for global poverty Mm. to one of the richest economies in the world um it's hard it's hard not to notice and i didn't Mm. come from a privileged background in that world (laughs) in the third world so now with education that sort of gave this upward mobility and a comfortable middle class it's 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 hard not to see those differences so the, the the whole idea of class as it is experienced through the lens of geography, maybe, mm. or the first, the so-called first world sure. versus the third world. Those things come up a lot in my yeah. life as well. No doubt about it. I know. And with that, I mean, there's so many, I guess, more subtleties, right? Like where, you know, Dia's mom's basically saying like, hey, get get a stable job. And Dia, Dia had one for a while and was doing very well financially, but she ends up going into like art history, you know, kind of some of the things you were talking about earlier, just like art history. Like, you know, a lot of parents would be like, what is that? Like, you have this great job. You're making six figures. Like, what are you, what are you doing? Um, but you know, where, where somebody of upper class or, or higher class or whatever the term would be has more room to be, I'm going to go travel for a year. Right. right. I'm going to take a, you know, I'm going to take a, an unpaid internship for others. It's like, what, what is that right. unpaid internship? Right. right. Um, you know, and again, this idea of like excitement and passion over comfort. 
Um, Dia definitely wanted to explore the world and, and was, you know, like, what do I love? What do I love to do? There's a great comparison with like Nargis the bird. Right. Who's like made his own home. Right. Is the way this is written about, right? He's made his own home in, in, the, in you know, in the house, in the apartment. Um, but all, but yeah, so just ideas of independence and stability. And there's a great quote. I'm being a big fan of like the Godfather and mafia type things. I think of <laughs> oh yeah, Michael Corleone says, you know, my, what about my future? My future. Right. Your, and they said your father has plans for your future. Right. And the quote from uh, from I believe from Diaz. What about what I like? Right. <laughs> Seems so basic, but you know, kind of like an informal matchmaking. You know, is it pronounced Yash? Yes. Yeah. Yes. 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 yes is you know he's got he, he checks all the boxes <laughs> right. right and dia's mom says why not and she, she didn't have the chemistry she didn't have the passion right so um and you know with that you talked about there's a lot about home and the diaspora of course um there's some great descriptions of of of, of a diverse indian population diverse diaspora right um Mor- moritus how would you pronounce the Mauritius. Mauritius, right off the coast of Africa. Um, some who are first, second and third generation Indian American. You talked about the rural and the 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 urban. Um, you know, some who who speak the language perfectly, some who don't. What when Dia returns to India to Bombay or to, to Mumbai and she gets these questions like tourists would. What what was that like for her? And maybe what was that like? For, I don't know if that's ever happened to you, like where you are, you know, of Indian background, you're from there, you speak languages from there. Right. And, but they could tell she was a tourist or that she wasn't from there at the moment. I guess, what was that like to write about or to experience? Yeah. I think it's both. Uh, I, I think it's a very classic diaspora moment, um, but it's also like a first generation diaspora moment, okay. right? I mean, People like my husband, who are also part of Indian diaspora, but who were born and raised here, they don't feel the need as much to go back to the motherland. They really, you know, they identify themselves less maybe with the hyphen, more with American, sure. Indian American. But people like us, who the first generation, I mean, first generation American, um, who has first half of our lives, we associate with India and second half with America. We're really in that mm-hmm. space of the hyphen non-existent i'm not for that idea of a hyphen uh, that we somehow like kind of so it, it's a very classic moment of those like me first generation americans who go back home and who are then seen as tourists yeah. so of course i've experienced it but i'm not the only one who've experienced like my friends all almost all of all of my friends who go back you know as part of that diaspora who were raised there mm-hmm. you, you were experienced as a tourist and why does this happen? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't know how to articulate that in language. Um, maybe I will someday as a writer. I wouldn't know how to articulate that yeah. yet. But it does happen. It's a very... So um, to me, yes, it was a personal moment, but it's a very communal. It's a very yes. communal yes. Well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, the great, the great works are always very, very particular to their place, to their time, and also have universal points. And for sure, I mean, how many of us, all of us can understand what it's like to be separated from maybe maybe family members you were previously really close to, you used to, you know, you grew up with that cousin and, you know, life life just, you know, maybe there was no blow up, it just, you know, life happened. So, you know, when she goes back, when Dia goes back for this this baby shower, um, you know, it's like texting back, you know, what's up, what's up, of course, the classic, 
you know, app and for connection. And it's like, okay, cool. Let's get together. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And then, you know, once she gets there and once there are more specific things or like, Hey, can you come across the city? Radio silence. Right. And a great, a great quote in here is quote, no matter how close they were growing up in India, what stood between them, it occurred to her were seven years in a few oceans. You know, there, there's, there's a sadness there, right. Where it's just like not being able to fully get back what was there, that nostalgia. Right. Right. And you're right. I mean, it is a diasporic moment, but you're right. I think maybe all of us experience that, right? It happens with relationships. Like you, one yeah. has one has that chemistry, so to speak, at some point, and then time passes, and then you're like, oh. Or you have, or you have kids, and you have no free time anymore. You know, all <laughs> the above, right? That too. <laughs> right. <laughs> but um, but uh, you know, it's not it's not all doom and gloom. Like there's a beautiful scene at the end of that story. Excuse me, chapter where you know there's this. The way that I took it was you know, Ronnie, Ronnie and, um, and Dia were able to get out on the dance floor and the family and friends. And no matter how much they fully speak the language or don't, how long they've been there, they're dancing. There's like this, there's like this connection with like the ancestor, like they all have grandma in common. Right. right? And you use the word synergy a lot. And there's just, just this synergy of the dancing. And again, it's like, sounds cheesy. And, and you, you play it off the way you write it is, you know, not cheesy at all. It's very subtle. But just this idea of like, we all have this in common, we all have this person in common, and this is our family. The family is definitely defined in different ways throughout the book. How about how about with family with like the men? Like most of them, for uh, second and third generation, you know, they go and they watch Lakers games, but they, you know, they always spend time together. What, how do they find family, especially if maybe some of their families are more scattered? And I think that too, to me, like all these moments that you're talking about, like that first, the first one in Mumbai that takes place where, for instance, with the woman character, Dia, right? And mm -hmm. she finds that she cannot relate to her family in the same way. At the same time, there is this effortless relationship to yes. them dance. Yes. That coexists, that kind of paradox in many ways coexists. And I feel it's kind of similar maybe when the boys, right, the male characters, mm -hmm. they're hanging out at a bar and it's like they feel a lot of kind of distance from their parents, but they find family in each other. Right. So you're right. I mean, the definition of family as we move along from different kinds of diaspora from one to another, from one community to another, the definitions of family constantly keeps changing mm -hmm. um i i wouldn't know to analyze that further i yeah. felt like that that was the whole point of showing like the, you know these things are not constant and these paradoxes or oppositions can coexist right yeah the idea of coexisting for sure there's there you know there are some beautiful just like small moments where along those same lines so you know so neil and, and dia and and so dia has her family mostly back in Mumbai, not in Southern California. And Neil is, you know, at, at a family member's party or, or, you know, baby shower or whatever, every other week, every other month, you know, three, four times a month. And she's naturally, you know, she's naturally jealous. I would, she doesn't, doesn't come out naturally, doesn't come out explicitly, but, um, you know, and she wants to go on this, this uh, one year, their, their baby's one year and they want to go to Hawaii. And of course he says, well, cool. I'll invite a couple of family members and doesn't tell her she's really upset. She wants some alone time. She's, you know, and then, but there's also just a beautiful moment where he speaks to her, uh, where he, um, I think I'm getting two of the stories mixed up, but where they just have their moment where they're together 
amongst all the talking and jokes and Lakers game and this and that, and they just have like their connection. What you're talking about is how that story ends, I think. Yes, I am. And they have this moment of connection. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. As, as the book goes on, um, you know, there are the, the characters get older Dia in the end, we talked about, you don't want to put an exact age on it, but she's, you know, close to retirement age. She has a, she has grandkids. Right. And there's this idea of, and, and please help me with, is it Haveli? Yes. This yeah. idea, you know, very significant, this idea of the Haveli that's been in the family for generations, you know, and it's like, what do we do with this? It's got, for her as an artist, as an art historian, it's got beautiful architecture and art to it. It obviously has huge family significance, but it's like, okay, you know, as the generations go on, they're, they're further and further, you know, not as connected, they're more disconnected. And the question of, you know, does she sell it? She knows somebody who's going to buy it. That's kind of keeping in the family, but not really. And it's just, you know, the whole story is just such a saga. I could see, you know, the book is always better than the movie. <laughs> always, <laughs> except for like two occasions. But like, there's so many interesting characters and like, I could see it being like a family saga. I could see it being, you know, just concentrating on one character. But I just love the 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 breadth of the book. How were you able to like, Right over, you know, right over so many years within the book, but yet, yet keep some con. There is continuity in that we same characters. How were you able to do such disparate stories at times, but also make it revolve around the same type of characters? You're like, I don't know. Yeah, no. Okay. <laughs> Speaking of time, maybe... <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> really. The book was written over a period of 17 years, which is like half okay. my life. Um, yeah. So um, I think it allowed But you were four years old when you started the book? What the <laughs> Thank heck? you. You're so kind. What a, what a prodigy, <laughs> man. <laughs> um, okay, a little, if I'm honest, a little over half my life. Um, <laughs> um, I think I was just trying... I was learning to be a writer with this book. I was giving myself more the permission to be a writer because I associated that with very gifted people that I did not associate myself with. And I think one of the good things about maybe being in that space, although the self-doubting was not a good thing, um, but being in that space was just kind of going where characters take you. And that's what I did with the book, sort of just going, exploring. And the time, 17 years, kind of allows you, you know, different stories, can emerge in that time frame in a way maybe that a year of writing, you know, at least from a debut writer, it may not produce the same breath um, mm -hmm. um, for for many of us mortals. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. And I, I think really, I, I wish I had like a very rationalized answer to this. I don't. I think over this period, I was just following these characters. Yeah. Said that said in the last two years, once it got accepted for publication by an indie press, I did put on very strictly sort of the critics hat. Mm -hmm. And I had a vision already of what kind of a novel, what kind of a form I wanted the book to take. So archipelagic is yes. <laughs> a word I might use fragmented. But then I think there was a conscious decision in those sort of last couple of years of how I can make these ties stronger. So mm. that's when sort of connecting these different characters through that web mm -hmm. and creating a web was important. So certain details will repeat, like a silk stole would yes. repeat, yes. the idea of roses in bloom would repeat. So structure was important to me, but I was trying mm. to do structure in alternative ways. So I, I, 
yeah, I mean, I think just bringing back those details, like 9, 8, 12, we talked about it and the story with the Nepali maid that happened. Mm -hmm. I don't know originally if 9, 12, one of the characters was Nepali maid's boyfriend. Sure. At some point, I had to make them. But then there is so much references to travel agents and like travel buses mm -hmm. and those moments then repeat themselves in those stories. Okay, yeah. Well, no, it's so interesting. I mean, it's like you you lived you lived along with these characters for all those years. You know, obviously we all change and there's so many different experiences in our lives. And, you know, for those years that you were writing it to, you brought that to the page. Um, you know, it's just so cool to see it come come to fruition like that. Obviously, we'd be remiss without talking about There's obviously a lot about gender roles and misogyny, um, <laughs> for sure. For sure. Um, you have so many strong, so many just quantity wise you have so many strong female characters and you know a logical person looks at something like um why are the women in whatever culture whatever group why are the women always the last ones to eat why are they the you know why is their labor at home in the workplace you know i'm not saying anything fresh and original but just logically speaking like yeah okay cool like well he's tired you know mom would always say about i think about dr dr neil well mom's you know uh He's tired. Well, so am I. Like I have a job. I was stooped over my art for eight hours or ten hours or whatever. And so, you know, there's obviously a lot there. And we love how how Diaz doesn't doesn't suffer fools, as I would say, right? She she's not buying it, right? There's also Ricky. And remind me, Ricky's relationship to Dia. So is, yeah, it's it's once again in that web of relationships. Uh, Ricky is Noor's sister-in-law and Noor okay. is one of best friends here. The and Noor are very close friends. Right. And so, you know, she's one, you know, she's definitely outside the norm. She's not one who sticks to these traditional feminine roles. And um, that's a, a beautiful story where the father, an older 75 year old man, and he just kind of looks back at his life and he, he rues his mistakes but you feel for him because they're not mistakes out of malice. They're mistakes because he had to work major hours, you know, had to, to, to support his family and stuff. But he just kind of looks back and says, you know what, if the first time they started to, you know, maybe make jokes about like homophobic jokes about Ricky or, you know, make fun of her because she's not a traditional, you know, female or whatever. He's like, I should have stopped it or I should have been more proactive. Right. But you feel for him because he is he is well-meaning, I think. Right. And now he's going to be able to have a chance to write his story and get it out to the world. So I always love that meta thing, right? Where he's writing a story within a chapter, within a book, right? And of course, a great way to end the book is, is it pronounced Kundalini? Kundalini. Kundalini. And his ideas of, you know, feminine energy. You talked about that a little before. Uh, you know, there's a quote, something about like, oh, so-and-so's, you know, he's born with a penis, you know, therefore he's exalted. <laughs> and I just love this idea of, an ancestor, a goddess, just kind of like an omniscient, not kind of an, an omniscient type character, just looking over all of it and really just, and what a way to end the story. And this, and the book does not end there because I know you, you don't use these traditional forms, but um, I wonder what you were, why, you know, as far as structure, why that one to end it? Uh so there were two minds, the rational, right? The workshop mind said, you need to end this book on Dia's journey, the Hawaii uh. chapter. And many, uh, you know, uh, 
many um, who looked at the manuscript also said you need to end there. Mm-hmm. But then there is the non-rational mind. I'm right? glad you didn't listen. Yeah, me too. I, <laughs> I, I love that last chapter. But like I said, it's the non-workshop mind. And there was this kind of fight in my head between yeah. the workshop mind and the non-workshop mind. And that voice was so insistent. And the voice mm-hmm. was like, I need the last word here. Um, and I was like, okay, now how do I make this happen? So I loved, and that was the easiest chapter to write. Oh, wow. Because I felt like I just downloaded. I just, the voice <laughs> was so insistent. Um, and then I was like, okay, now how do I make the form work? Because this is not, you know, it's it's not the traditional form. Um, and so that was the bigger question, not so much about retaining the chapter. That was like, a, I wouldn't be allowed to finish the manuscript without mm. it. That decision was taken for me, <laughs> from else uh, within me, but how to make it fit. And that's when I kind of re- started reflecting more on forms, but also with my desert ancestry, this whole idea of frame narratives. Framing is super important in our art, in our performing art, in our visual arts. Mm -hmm. We have a long tradition of very political theater and puppeteering and framing is really important to that. Uh, Okay. So, um, and framing is really important to many of the South Asian, I mean, I mean really any of the formerly colonized cultures, uh, yeah. many of them oral storytelling, including, including actually, uh, you know, the West too, right? The heptameron, the decameron, okay. the, older, the older traditions, they have yes. like a strong tradition of frame, frame narrative. So this was then sort of, you know, I, I wanted to make it sort of a frame because frame comes in the dances. pleasure it has been to speak with Namrata. Continue good luck to her with her writing and I'm so looking forward to continuing to follow her career and her important work. Thank you for listening to episode 156 of the Chills of Will podcast. You can now subscribe to the podcast on Apple, leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will PO1. You can watch this and other episodes on YouTube. Watch and subscribe to the Chills at Will podcast channel. Sign up now for the Chills at Will podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash Chills at Will podcast Peter Real. My last name is spelled R-I-E-H-L. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag, new t-shirts coming, and bonus episodes. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental, and the other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 157 with Alana Massad. Alana is a queer Israeli-American writer of fiction, nonfiction, and criticism. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, New York Times, LA Times, and many more. She is the author of the critically acclaimed and awarded novel, All My Mother's Lovers. This episode will air on December 20th. For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills, like Namrata Podar, whose work 
like borderless gives you chills at will.